Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, thedjburr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Well, Becca, thank you for coming to the show today, and it's uh, it's lovely to meet you in, in person. A lot of my interviews are done over the phone or via Skype, so nice. thank you for being here, and welcome to Making an Addict. So on this show, we talk to people about what their thoughts and feelings are about what con- what contributes to someone becoming an addict. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit of your story and your thoughts and feelings about that? Um, yes, of course. There's... Many different tracks, I think, and I have a couple of them. So maybe one person would go down this way, but I think I got a couple whammies. Um, Childhood trauma is probably the biggest one, and I I have two childhood traumas before the age of seven. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so my my dad died from brain cancer, and I was sexually abused. And so those two things, just right before you're even at seven years old, developmentally, are, are defining. And for me, I was already a pretty bright kid, so I would already ha- I already had the problems of a, of of knowing more than many kids my age did, and not right. just academically, but just I saw more, I was paying attention more. So I had the genetics, mm-hmm. and then I had the two childhood traumas. And in my experience of being with other addicts, I'm married to an addict. Um, that that's a big chunk yeah. <laughs> of managing. Mm-hmm. You got to manage whatever is happening in the world, and I think in the beginning, because of those things, I was really trying to get control. I want to control over something. I didn't have control over how much my peers knew and understood me. I didn't have control over it in. When I was like four and five, I didn't have control over being able to communicate my ideas or my thoughts or why I was thinking a certain way. And then having two traumas actually quite close together, I don't even know what, how far apart they were, they were that close together. I just had a, I I just had a, I needed to control something. And... What started to happen, I think one of my first addictions was food, actually. And I wasn't allowed to have sugar. And sugar, for a lot of people, is actually an opiate. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, great. I have, I'm a kid. I have access to sugar. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had that everywhere. Right. Most kids do. Right. 
And I had parents and family. I had, it's not parents, I had relatives and friends who had access to it. So like a little drug addict, I was hanging around where the sugar was. And at that time in the um, late 70s and early 80s, you know, sugar was bad, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the thing that we think it is and we know it is now. Um, But man, I remember stealing money to go to 7-Eleven to get whatever sugary thing what I was wanted. What your favorite thing? Um, I was a big candy bar person. Okay. So it was like Snickers, Milky Way, mostly chocolate. But I, I definitely really... was in that zone of like, I got to get me the sugar. <laughs> um, and ice cream was easy. I mean, ice cream actually wasn't even restricted. We had that okay. in the house. And I wasn't, you know, eating it at night. But I definitely, there are times when I could only think about that. Similar to some drug addicts I know. Yeah. So that's what contributed. And then kind of over time, I have an adaptive personality. I realized, well, I can't keep eating like this. It's not healthy. It doesn't feel good. People are going to say stuff. And like a chameleon, I would just change my addiction. So I didn't stand out that I was eating too much sugar because I was also a health nut. Interesting. So I'd eat this other way, but then I would kind of, you know, silently, quietly over here do that. And it wasn't, again, I wasn't sneaking it at night. It wasn't like, wasn't in the big flags weren't showing to anybody. But that was part of me being, an, I mean, that's how I knew I was an addict addict. Because many addicts are quite functioning. You wouldn't know. We have lots of mis- misconceptions about them. Absolutely. Um, and so I just switched. I switched to... Um, the money thing actually changed over time, which is my primary addiction now, is that I wanted money. Money was control. After the sugar thing, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm kind of getting, go, getting over this, and I want money for other stuff. Um, I was like trying to figure out how to make money like nobody's business. As a child, like how I was old? like, oh, eight. Eight years eight. old. Eight. I was like, okay, so I'm going to, I couldn't babysit. I'm going to have a fundraiser. I mean, I. A fundraiser, right? I, did, I had no concept of how money was being spent or what things were worth, but I was like, I'm gonna throw a, I'm gonna throw a dance party. This is eight years old. I lived in Kennewick, Washington, oh my goodness. and I was like, I'm gonna have a dance party. Of course, I only charged people twenty five cents, but at the end of the day, I was like, I have five dollars, right? Nice. I get friends and family came over and we had a dance party, and. Many people are like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. Sure, I can call myself an entrepreneur. In another interview, I might do that. Right. But I could feel <laughs> what I was earning that money for. And I could feel the shifty behavior around it. And so um, debting was the easiest way to get that quick money. Of course, I did not think about the repercussions. That was not my thing. But I was like, credit cards? I don't even have to raise the money. There it is. I can just go and use it. Yeah. And when did you get your first one? Ching. 18. 18. When like, I was, like a lot of people. Yeah. And they got me. Here's the double whammy. They got me to sign up because they were giving away M&Ms. No way. Yes. I was like, oh my God, let's have two addictions coincide oh, at the no. same time. And I remember that moment. She said, do you want a t-shirt? And I was like, no, just the M&Ms, please. I mean, literally, that's what I wanted it for was the M&Ms. And then once I got it, and then once I saw how high the credit limit went for college students, which at the time was like 14000 This was in 1996 or 97. Goodness. $14,000. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a huge overspender mm-hmm. in that big way, but... Um, this meant I could stop asking for money from my parents. 
I don't, wasn't doing it that much, but I was doing it enough that I was like, well, now you don't even know what name's bending. Mm. As long as I can sort of pay the bills, right? Yeah, right. Um, and then, and then it just kind of went from there. So that's a long history, but like it, it, my addiction has evolved and adapted, which is actually something that happens also. Absolutely. They just you, you know, think you got one down, and like, oh, okay, I'm recovering here. Mm-hmm. Slips into another category. And did you find that you had other things happening in your life that kind of, kind of uh, fueled your addiction? So you had the traumas when you were young, mm-hmm. but did other things continue to happen that you use your addiction to to maybe take care of yourself um, and comfort you? Yeah, I think part of the the lead into the overspending before I got the credit card was shopping. Okay. Um, I asked for money for very specific things. Like when, when I was in therapy, I, when I was driving myself to therapy, um, I had to have dinner because I was, therapy was in between two events sure. and dinner was, you know, yeah. I mean, dinner was in between these two events. So I asked my mom, okay, well, I think it's fair to give me $5 for dinner, right? I was going to eat at McDonald's, whatever. Mm-hmm. What I would do, this probably leads into other addiction, but um, I would buy the $1.50 uh, American meal, which is a happy meal for adults, and then I would save the difference. Okay. And then over time, that money would accrue once a week, but I, had a, I was earning other money, babysitting and other things like that. Then I would just go shopping, like a big, huge shopping spree. Huh. And a shopping spree for me at 16 was like $50, $70. But like at Old Navy, that's a whole wardrobe. That's a whole wardrobe, right? absolutely. My mom never asked me about it or anything like that. But like it led into this concept of I'm going to go and I'm going to make myself feel good. For whatever reason, I was feeling bad yeah. um, by shopping. And I, I bought music and clothes. And that was the, those were the two that I kind of, again, they don't stand out that much. I didn't no. buy big things like stereo equipment or anything like that. Because my parents would have been like, what are you doing? What's happening here? But right. I would just kind of sneak in these little moments of like, oh, yeah, I got that sweater. And I would never show, I would never come home with a full bag of clothes. I'd be like, I have a new sweater, one new sweater, one time once. Hmm. But over time, you know, the wardrobe would come out and yeah, somehow sure. I had amazing amounts of clothes all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and no one said anything. No one said anything. Nope. Not even, I mean, I guess I didn't even talk about it to my friends. I wasn't like, here's my sneaky plan. Nope, wasn't a sneaky plan. I deserve this money. I deserve to spend it on myself. Right. I deserve to feel better. Um, and 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 that was it. And I and I, I don't even think I thought of it as a coping mechanism or anything like that. I just thought, I'm smart. Mm-hmm. I'll figure out how to get what I want. Yeah, we usually don't think of it as a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. at least until we get into recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you had a couple different things happening for you, mm-hmm. right? As addictive qualities mm-hmm. happening for you. Um, were you aware that um, maybe it wasn't the healthiest thing? Um, I think... No. I mean, at the time, as a young person, only in my like adulthood, like later adulthood, mm-hmm. I'm 39 right now, um... I think I, as a kid, I just thought, this is what clever people do. This is how clever people get what they want and need. They just figure it out. Mm. And I mean, I was in therapy the whole time. I wasn't like a renegade or like, you know, <laughs> like a rebel in that way. Like I was being watched by a professional. Um, 
But I think, again, it, it wasn't so extreme that anyone was, like, really, like, freaking out about it. You know, I wasn't, mm. I didn't steal anything other than money as a child. And I, I was like, oh, I'm going to, I need a dollar for hot lunch and I'm not getting enough lunch. So I'm going to get that dollar and get that lunch, right? It right. was just like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, my mom has $10 in her wallet. Yoinks. Like, I, in mine, every dollar had a place that it was going. It wasn't just stealing money to steal money. Interesting. Um, but I, that was the extent of it. There was nothing... I didn't shoplift. I didn't, you know, there was no other thing that I was trying to fill or do or whatever. So I just, I didn't see it as bad. Um, And didn't see it as a coping mechanism. And yeah, I just, I figured, well, oh, a key component actually to my financial problems was that I was not allowed to work um, as a student. Okay. And so if I was a student all through high school and then several moments in college, because I stopped college many times, um, I, I, in my brain, I didn't even think to, to ignore that from my parents. My mom said, don't work. Because she wanted you to stay focused on stay school. Stay focused on school. I mean, again, it, it, I don't think it was like prohibitive in that same way of like, if you work, you are in trouble. But like in her mind, and who who really wants to work, um, I right? I just thought, okay, and the, and so earning also became wrapped into like the trauma of not learning how to earn money became part of it. But of course, I didn't see it at the time. I thought I'm so lucky; I don't have to work. Right. But what then that made me start. I went to get a credit card. I didn't go to get a job. Right. And whatever I was using with the credit card, I could have easily paid for with a job. <laughs> so that was a big, like, by the time I was out of college, I had no, I was very, again, very smart, but not employable. Like, mm. I don't, I think I had an internship for like a month once. And I was, by the time I graduated, 25, 26. So credit cards, I had some inheritance, but like that actually ended up being, that's why it didn't, it didn't occur to me that I was doing something um, wrong or bad or, yeah, it definitely didn't sound, it didn't feel like a coping mechanism, it just felt like the way I was living my life. And were you in debt by the time you graduated college? Well, I had had got school loans, so that was easy debt right there. Um, When I got the deep, when I started actually going, well, I can pay this back, which is almost like the first moment of like, I hadn't quit any time, exactly. <laughs> right? That's, yeah. the, that's the money version of that. I can quit any time. I'll pay this back eventually. Um, I was 26, and I was traveling. Okay. And I thought, well, there's no way that I'm going to be able to earn enough money to do what I want when I'm traveling. And traveling doesn't last forever. True. So I'm going to live it up. And I, I think I even had the conversation with my mom. I was like, if I use my credit card... I don't have to keep, you know, asking you for money or worrying about where the money's coming from. And, yeah, she, I mean, she said it wasn't a good idea. But I'm 26 at this point. Mm. I've been doing my own thing for a long time. Right. So I just thought, here we go. So when she said it wasn't a good idea, did she say, how are you going to pay for this? No, definitely yeah. not. She did definitely not ask not. me that. <laughs> no probing question. Nope. No probing question. She said, it's not a good idea. I wish you wouldn't do it. That's it. All right. And I was like, thank you for your feedback. I'm actually already in Europe right now, so... Oh, okay. So you, know. you actually went to Europe for traveling. Uh-huh. Okay. So that can be quite pricey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. that I, I found a way to spend $10,000. Goodness. In three months. In three months. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so here we go. 
you came back with this credit card debt. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Well, at that time, I had just met my partner um, back in the States. And and we weren't, we, were, he, we didn't have to good, say anything about what our financial situation was. So I was like, that's fine. <laughs> I'll just keep doing the thing. And I think I started like, trying to be like, I got I to get a job. Like, I knew that, I, that this is a big chunk of money and I really don't have any money to pay it back with. And I should probably get a job because I'm 26 years old. So I started house cleaning and I started doing kind of like odds and ends jobs. And I had done that prior, but like for a month at a time, like very, very small stints. Right. And I finally got a job at a place after um, house cleaning for a year and a half. And that was great. The house cleaning, you know, I was just like, man, I'm just going to do this. Again, kind of like a drug addict. Like, how can I get the quickest money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Manual labor, great. Um, so I started that way. And then kind of as my husband came online, he said, you know, you actually have to get a real job with, like, benefits and, like, long-term, every day, five to eight hours a day. And I was like oh, you're right. I actually can't keep living like this. Hmm. But I had at that time gotten probably three more credit cards and then I was starting to do the juggle. Oh, yeah. And then when we got together, it was not very hard to convince, not convince him, but I was like, yeah, we'll just do the credit card and then you have your job and then I'll, you know, like, it was easy to start to be like, yeah, we could have figured this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and then it just kind of kept cascading, like, in big chunks. Like, we got married a year, two years after we got together. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, we didn't have that money. We didn't save that money for a wedding. Mm-hmm. So, like, another $10,000 went on. The credit card. The credit card. Wow. Mm-hmm. And did, were you through college at this point? Did yeah. Did you finish? Yep. And I imagine you didn't go to school to learn how to clean houses. No. Right. What did you actually go to school for? I went to school for writing. For writing. Yeah. Okay, which is challenging mm-hmm. to get a job in. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so you're doing odds and ends kind of jobs. Yes. And running up the credit cards. Yes. And your husband is doing whatever work he's doing. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not enough for both of you. Yes. Did you guys sit down and have a conversation? No. No. Oh, no. Oh, at the time we sat down and had a conversation, well, we had, there weren't conversations. I, I was into the shrieking and the yelling at that point. Uh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't shrieking, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like I remember it very strongly where my husband worked in a coffee company and I would see, and I wasn't, oh, that's another big point. I was in charge of the finances. My husband actually didn't see the juggling of the credit cards. He didn't know how many times I had applied for a credit card by the oh, time wow. I had applied for like three. Okay. So um, a little financial infidelity in that way. Like right. I was like, okay. Absolutely. And and so, and at that point we were married and our finances were joined, but like neither of us were looking at the other one's stuff. We both had school debt. We both were just going to like kind of chunk at it mm-hmm. pieces at a time. It was all good as long as we weren't in collections, we weren't going bankrupt and we could get groceries, right? Like that was my little like, yeah. as long, you know, we can keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was looking through all the expenses, and I'm, you know, meticulous about that. Yeah. And I saw that he had, like, you know, coffee shop, you know, $1.62, coffee shop, $1.62. And at the end of all those addings up, I was like, oh, my God, it's $50 in coffee? You work in a free coffee place. Like, you get it for free. 
And that was the shrieking part where I was like, I just don't understand. And that was like the most stressful part of our marriage was like reconciling, like, why are you spending so much money on coffee? Of course, I did not look at my earning capability or my the way I was doing anything, but I was saying like, look, I've scrimped as much as I can. We didn't have cable. We didn't have whatever. We were sharing. We bought a home shared with another couple. So we were, you know, half the mortgage. So a normal, cheaper than rent would be for a two-bedroom house. Um, We didn't even have a car when we moved. We moved to Burien, but in Seattle, we didn't have a car. I sold that. It wasn't, you know, I sold it for something. I just sold it because I didn't need it. So we were saving money as much as you possibly could. But this coffee thing was really, you know, right. He's driving at me. Right, he's spending 50 bucks on coffee. Yeah. So um, I realized that that was actually building the resentment quickly. Yeah. Because, of course, he did it every month. Like sure. It wasn't just like, oh, one time I went to Coffee Butch. No, it was like every – because he was going to competitors and he was had friends who work in the coffee industry. And, and I got so upset about it. I mean, like, rageful that I thought – Maybe I should look at the fact that, like, this is a huge deal, this 50 bucks. Right. The 50 bucks is the deal. That was my, that's what I was getting upset by. Not by the thousands of dollars that was credit card debt, <laughs> but the $50. And I knew from that, at that point, I was off. I was off balance. And I had not been in a 12-step program before. My husband had. Um, but when I, when I thought about 12 steps, I, I thought about, like, what, I've heard the term gutter drunks. Right? Interesting. And so for DA, it's someone who is already poor, not very educated. You know, like I was just kind of going like, I'm not any of these things. I'm not that poor. I'm not that uneducated. You know, like, so I I don't belong So you made up a story. I made up a huge story about it. But, and I can only say this probably to the 12-step group, but something bigger than me was like, just probe a little bit deeper. And I was like, all right, these are phone meetings. No shame. No one sees my face. No one has to hear my story. I can silently listen for hours at a time. And I get on, and like the first one, I'm like, <laughs> like this is me. All of yeah. this is me. Denial shattering. Totally. <laughs> and then when I hear, like, I heard normal people talk about normal things. It wasn't like everybody, you know, was living under the poverty line. It was like different mm-hmm. stuff. It wasn't just credit cards. It was under-earning, which is actually my, big, my biggest problem. Um, because literally the day I walked into the rooms, I was like, done. Don't have to use credit cards anymore. Someone else is going to help me figure this out. And that, I had no problem letting that go. Right. So the credit cards, I never, I, I'm not tempted by them. I just thought that was a quick way to make money. But now that they don't work, I can find a different way to live my life. But the under-earning. But the under-earning, man, I'm still holding on that to that That had always one. been there. Oh, yeah. And, and that was the thing. I got, I inherited a lot of that as well. Right. Right? In my family, my mom was independently wealthy from a young age from her dad ah. and so I never saw her work oh, interesting. she just volunteered my dad died when I was six so I never really saw him work you had no model I had no model and even my siblings because they were also told not to work I only saw them kind of tangentially working but I also didn't quite get that we were like in the same boat like if they worked in in high school I should work in high school like I just was like right. no my high school's harder than yours <laughs> So, um, yeah, no model, and I realized that, like, once I was listening to everybody talk about stuff, 
that it was a much bigger problem than just debt. And I was trying to fill the holes. And that's when I started to realize, oh, coping mechanism. How do I cope? How do I gain control? How do I ignore and deny? Well, I'll create this other crisis. Mm. It's a perfect shell game. Especially if it's an, a crisis. Like, debt is acceptable. Yeah, we all have it. Our, our country has it. Right. Yeah. If I want to be a normal person, I should have debt. Yeah, sure. Right? No problem. Mm-hmm. And it's actually when it started to like harm my relationship and harm my friendships because I was somebody who borrowed little chunks of money from friends. I'll pay you back. And, and I did have every intention of paying back. But yeah. I almost thought, that like, what if I'm just charming enough that they don't need me to pay it back? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of the addict coming in like, well, but I'm a good friend. Your, I'll be a good friend instead. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of amends to make at that point. <laughs> and definitely <clears throat> borrowing books. I'm like, oh, that's a thing? I can't do that anymore? I had tons of books that remind my, you know, because I'm your friend. I'll give it back. You know I'm good for it. Come and get it whenever you want to. So, um, yeah, and that was that moment where I was like, I better stay here. Stay in DA. In, in DA, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, because no matter what, even if the debt all gets paid, this is old. I've been doing this for a long time. Right. Whatever the shuffle was, I had a shuffle game. So it could have been credit cards, could have been, you know, the friend thing. Yeah. Um, even, even, I shuffled bills too. Like I'll pay one bill this month and then the next bill the next month. But I won't pay both bills both months. Right. Because I don't have to. Right? I mean, they're not going to get me. I'm not going to turn my water off because I'll pay the next month. I'll give them a call. I'm like, no, I'll pay you next month. That all sounds very familiar. Yeah. So. Mm. Goodness. So you had multiple addictions happening, mm-hmm. right? Harm was coming to your relationships mm-hmm. and your primary relationships, mm-hmm. right? And you decided to make a decision to stay in DA. When did things start to turn around? Within six months. Within six months. That was the thing. Blessing. I thought... <sighs> That all the disaster that I had created would take as much time as it did, as long as I had take. How long I made, how long it took for me to make it was how long it took for me to fix it. That's right. what I thought. Uh-huh. But I went in, and I heard about under earning, and I heard about people buying new socks, and I was like, oh, I can do this like one step at a time, like they say. This is one step at a time. I'm gonna buy some new socks because all my socks have holes in them, and I was just hanging onto them until they fell off my feet. So I did the, you know, bought a pair of socks. I started tracking my numbers, which is a huge thing. And I started to see where the money was really going. Because I was really zoning in on the coffee. But, like, we were wasting money all over the place. Mm. And not only were we wasting it, but we didn't even know we were wasting it. So that was worse. It was like, I can't even find the leak. Yeah, I wasn't even looking for the leak. Right, and you were in charge of the finances, right? And I was in charge of the finances. Yeah. And I just thought... Excuse me, I thought, this is how it's supposed to go. So, like, don't shake this. And I thought, oh, that's, this is not right. This is not how it's supposed to go. Um, so I heard, I heard about that. And then I, I heard about being honest. And I, I didn't think of myself as a shysty, shifty, tricky person. And then I was like, oh, honesty isn't always about lying or not lying. It's about actually saying to a potential boss, I'm looking for work. 
And I didn't do that because I was like, well, if you thought I was amazing, you'd come up to me and ask. Yeah. <laughs> it could also be about, this is what I would like to earn. Right. Yeah. So I, I, the, when I started kind of making money, and I mean that in the terms of actually like keeping the money, <laughs> not just throwing it back out um, onto something else, I, I actually, I remember the moment I walked into my boss's office and I said, this isn't enough for me. And it's fine if you can't get me to full. I was working part-time for them for, for two years. Okay. And I said, this isn't enough work for me, and um, I need to go. So I just want to give you a heads up. And he said, what does that mean, not making enough? And I said, well, I really I want to work full-time now. I think I've, I've gotten I've, – I'm, I'm at the end of my skill set with you in this position, and I want to work full-time, but I just don't see how that's going to work because I don't want to be a paralegal or a, a lawyer, of course. And he said, well, um, hang on, and we'll see what projects we can drum up. I mean, it did not occur to me that that's how it could go. Wow. And so I went from part-time, sad, partial contract work to, hold on, we'll just drum up work for you. And I thought, is this what I've been avoiding for 15 to 20 years ridiculousness I could have just asked somebody much easier when you're younger too by the way um and then that's when it happened I got immediately you know I had a six months trial and I got into a union uh office workers union that's huge it's huge it was real money like it wasn't like play money of like you know hand to mouth it was like oh like I actually have something contributing to a retirement at the end of this oh my and um, I also met people in the program who were doing really weird, clever things to make extra money. And one um, couple had a extra room or two extra rooms in their house, and they were putting it on VRBO. Yeah. And I had never heard of that before, leaving the concept. And at that time, um, Airbnb was starting. Mm-hmm. And actually, VRBO, you have to have the whole house, but we couldn't do that. We lived there. And I found this other, you know, room rental place. And I thought, I'm going to try it out because I can make more money okay. doing something that I like, using an asset I already have and you I'm already have, paying for. And an extra room. Yeah. And we had the, the couple that bought the house with us moved out. So then eventually we were, that was another, a, a second tier. I'd already been in DA at that time, but a second tier of like, yeah. oh crap, we can't afford a mortgage, just the two of us. Right. Um, but then we started renting the room out, and that changed our lives. Okay. And I keep going back to that couple that just said, oh, hey, we rented our room out. It was just in a three-minute share. You know, like, didn't sit us down and say, we think you should do this because that's why you have no money. But, like, if I was not in that room, and if I had not been willing to listen, and if I had not admitted I had a problem in the first place to get into, you know, like, you know, the train of how we get Absolutely, to these places, yes. then not only would I have not been able to earn the extra money to pay the mortgage, but I actually wouldn't have been able to actually get my dream realized before I was 60. Because I always wanted to have a bed and breakfast. Always. Oh, but man. only when, I, you know, it was only going to be when I liked doilies and I was like 60, 70 years old. Right. But here I was at like, it's been six years now, so 30 years old. We didn't even have a kid yet. And I was like, open for business. Let's do this. Is this what you're currently doing? It's part It's part of what I do. Okay. Yeah. Because Wonderful. it's something that now we don't need the money for it, though. 
but it's something that I actually enjoy doing, huh. and I wouldn't have been able to find that another way, right? A gift. A total gift. Um, and a lot of, I mean, I think I might say, there are lots of things I'm like, oh, you know what, I would give that back if I didn't have to relive my life in that same pattern, but finding out that I was an addict and then finding the solution to my addiction and then finding out what else I get, not just the reprieve from financial insecurity or fear of financial insecurity, but actually like having a life. Whoa, I wouldn't give that back. I'd do this all over again in the same way. I'd be like, okay, fine. If that's what I have to live with and this is what I get from it, sounds good to me. But I mean, it's hard to tell that person. It's hard to tell me that way in the beginning of the trauma, right? Yeah, you can't start off with that. No. Right? But I think what a lot of people miss is that our addiction leads us to the gifts. Right. Right. And they, the gifts might already have been latent inside of you. Absolutely. Right? I mean, yeah. I, I, I did already want to be a bed and breakfast person. But I didn't realize that how close, I, how early I could start that dream. Yeah. And because I didn't have the scripts playing out, like that gets interrupted when you start recovery your scripts start to be challenged and looked at and a bunch of people looking at them too, not just you. And rewritten. And I I definitely feel like, oh. And and my husband came into DA about a month after I did, which was a double gift because now we couldn't collude in our money scenarios. He has a completely different money problem than I do. Okay. I'm a depriver and he's a spender. Okay. So... I was always like, ah, you know, and he was like, Wah. and the best part about that is that now we know that about each other. And also we have the tools to get that clarity and we use that same model for everything. So it's not just clarity around money. It's clarity around time. It's clarity around childcare. It's clarity around parenting in general. Like what, what rules we decide to have as parents. Um, and and then what I tell every time um, I share on my first step is there's a phrase, it's not about the money. And more specifically for me, I just didn't understand how to have relationships with people. I was a good friend. I was a nice person. I wasn't a hermit. But I actually didn't understand the mechanics of friendship. I didn't understand being honest and authentic. I didn't understand not, being, not feeling indebted to somebody. Like that somebody actually wanted to be my friend anyways. Mm. Not, I didn't have to be charming to get their friendship. Yeah. And there was a little bit of using psychology as a currency exchange. If money ran out, I'm going to use this other thing, this like, right. you know, interaction. And then now, sure, I'm the person at the restaurant who's like, no, I want everybody to tell me what they have. I want to calculate 18 to 20% tax if that's what we agree on. And then I want you to give me in exact cash change the money that you owe. None of this like, whatever, I can cover it. No, for my health, I need to know how much I'm owing and I don't want you to resent me about it. And I would just say that literally every time we went out. And people just got used to it. And then they realized, oh, for clarity's sake, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, resentment, not building. So now when you say, do you want to go out? I look and I say, do I have the cash for that? Because we're going to do this thing every time. Right. Or do you have the cash for that? Because we're going to do this thing every time. (laughs) And um, And they'll get used to it. Right. And I think the clarity for me helped them 
know where I am at all times, right? There was no shifty behavior. There was no, I'll get you later, right? Like people all the time want to be like, oh, don't worry about it. It'll be hundreds of dollars till I really, till I really start worrying about it. Then right. is that okay with you? You know, because that's the thing. Yeah, that's honest. Yeah, right. And I don't think that would work for people. No, of course. If they knew that it if wasn't just ten dollars at a time, that I would get them back the next time, I, I definitely won't offer to get you back. I mean, yeah. that was I was clear on that. I'm not going to get you back because I don't want to. <laughs> and right. like my addict tells me that I don't have to. And I'm a good friend. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a good enough friend. I'm paying for this with my friendship. So. Um, yeah, those were like big moments for me. And then that's actually part of the reason I stayed. Yeah. Is that I thought, I could get rusty at this friendship thing. Mm-hmm. Or I could get vague at any second. It's very easy to be vague. It's easy to be lazy and it's easy to be vague. Mm-hmm. And um, and that all leads to other stuff too. Like it, it's, you know, after that six months of when I started to like feel the like, oh, is this amazing life for me too? It was like spider effect. It wasn't just like one good thing after another in a linear fashion. It was like, oh, I'm valuable in this way. I'm valuable in this way. I'm valuable in this way. And yes, I still under-earn, so progress, not perfection for me for sure. But I'm finally getting the crisis of the debt is going away so that I can get to the deeper thing. Why do I under-earn? Yeah. What do I think of myself? How do I value myself? How do I want people to value me versus how do they actually value me? And, you know, it's like, it's a, an adventure now. Now I'm like, tell me more. What's, how did I get to under earning? You know, like what's underneath that. this? I love that. It's an adventure. Yeah. It is. To, to learn about ourselves is an adventure. In a safe space with a bunch of other people who are doing it too so that the shame is not... I mean, part of why I think a lot of people don't want to explore is that the shame is immense. Absolutely. And I go in there and I'm one of the more jestery, joker people. Uh But it's amazing like how ridiculous... Like the ridiculous lengths we go through, we go to to do what we do. But I can go in there. No one's going to talk to me about it afterward. No one's going to shame me about it. No one's going to chide me for it. And I, I'm there by my, not by myself, but like I'm in it for me, by myself, yeah. to look at it for myself. And then everyone just goes, great. Just thanks great. For yep, thanks for sharing. It's not even great. There's no value judgment. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. I just yeah. got a chance to like, you know, <laughs> get it all out there. And then no one said anything and, it, and no one made a stink face about it. And then no. I could pick through it on my own. And then go, oh, yeah, there's a gem in here. Thanks. You can learn and grow from it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is a gift to have the ability to go through our histories and uncover all the things that influence us now in our present. And I think recovery is so important. And that's one of the reasons I am going on this adventure of interviewing people for this podcast and other podcasts because our stories need to be told, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because there are people out there who are scared to go on this journey. Mm-hmm. And they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. I also get a lot of value of hearing other people's stories because they put words to stuff that I hadn't yet. Yeah. One um, fellow in the program, she called it financial trauma. Yes. And I said, that's exactly how it feels. It's financial trauma. Absolutely. And once I saw it like that, I felt a lot more compassion towards myself. 
and towards my parents mm-hmm. and towards my other fellow DAers yeah. because no one walks into this program happy. Not one person Not walks one in person. on cloud nine thinking like, all right, I'm just going to stay out of debt because I never got into debt. No, no. You yeah. have all been in debt in some way, <laughs> in some way to yourself and to others. And when she said that, I just thought, oh, now I'm not just a, a dumb person, right? How come I can't figure out money? People who are traumatized, it's not because they're dumb. It's because they didn't have a good model or they didn't have any resiliency uh, practice in place or they were really young or any of that type of thing. And to hear somebody call it out, and then to also see the success of that person later, like the person that said that, I consider her actually one of the most successful people in this program. Wonderful. And then she called it trauma. And I was like, that means you survived, which yeah. means I can survive. Yeah. And that's pretty much why I share. It's not to pat myself on the back all the time, although it doesn't feel bad when people are like, thanks for your share. But honestly, there are so many people that die from this thing that we don't talk about that I just am like, I just want to share that like it could get super dark here mm-hmm. in money world. And it's normalized. The darkness of that is also normalized. Like, yeah, people go into bankruptcy all the time. It's totally fine. Uh, a lot of those people don't make it back out of bankruptcy. Exactly. Like that's their gig. That's the end for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, mm. that was really important for me to be able to actually share the story because I'm a writer. I could just write it all down and like call it good. See you later. Yeah. But to actually get the kind of personal feedback and to see people nodding their heads of like, yeah, that's what it's called. You know, then it's then all of a sudden it's not even about me at all. That's where higher power is like, look, please say it this way. Please make the joke about this. Please um, minimalize or maximize this aspect of it so that someone can hear it for themselves that, oh yeah, library fines, those are a debt. Nobody told me. Who knew? Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm just paying the library later. It's like buying a book only over like layaway, you know? Like, you know, my brain just could not get it. <laughs> but once I heard that, I was like, that's right. I am debting to the library. Somebody needs that book. My book is late. I'm late to give a resource to somebody else. I'm right. debting them. I'm debting mm. me. I'm debting the library. So, um, you have a yeah. very powerful story. Thank you. And I, I want to thank you for sharing it. And I wonder if you could leave us with a little nugget that you, you know, could impart to our listeners uh, on their on their journey. What would that be? A nugget. Um, God, there's so many. Let me let me think about that. I'll say this. All of my addictions have propagated and been successful in isolation. When I'm by myself, I, I got nothing. I'm not on it at all. And being witnessed in recovery without the judgmental part is is the lifeline that I needed. I didn't need everyone to give me all the answers. I didn't even need to have the same timeline of recovery as everybody else. 
But to get out of isolation allowed me to, to realize, oh, I'm missing the spiritual component in my life. It's for me to define, but I know I'm missing it. And this is a place where I'm allowed to look for it. And that's probably the real reason I keep coming back. I don't want to lose that again. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Can you tell our listeners, what do you do to stay sober on a daily basis? What do I do to stay sober? Um, Well, for me in DA, I look at my numbers as much as I can, which means going into my bank account. I have third-party software that doesn't matter what it is, but it helps me track how I'm spending. Um, And that's a good way for me to be like, I know where I'm at here. I know where I'm at when I'm looking at that. Um, Other things that I do, you know, part of the tools, I have a person I call almost every day. And if I don't call her, I'm thinking about her every day anyways because I've been calling her for four years now. Um, And it's a safe space to talk about... um, just what's happening, what, what my, my thoughts are. And I also practice willingness. Like I can be a stubborn person and I know when I feel the stubbornness inside my body, like that's the part where I'm like, I need to look here. Because I can feel, I can feel the lock up where I'm like, Ooh, I don't want to share or do or move. And I just have to say, I don't have to do anything after that. I just have to say, I'm curious, I'm willing. And then I can ease up a little bit, let higher power in. And those are probably the the most common things. I haven't talked at all about the steps because I doing I did the steps a long time ago. I'm not somebody who constantly redoes them. I know that's part of it. But um, for me, staying sober is actually like thinking about, gosh, how was it? Was it like now? Because right. I don't want to go back there, so I'll just do this. And I'm sure I can guarantee that if I did the 12 steps once a year, I would skyrocket. I'm not there yet, but I get I, that is an intellectual concept I've been you know, made aware of. So that's how I stay sober. That's what keeps me wanting more in sobriety or insolvency, we call it. Mm-hmm. I know there's more and I don't have to do it all today. And I'm going to peel the onion like this. <clears throat> Sorry, like this. So, um, yeah, stay with my people. Be willing. And stay clear. All right. Well, thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing this gift with us. Um, it is a very important lesson, right? We don't have to do this in isolation. No. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making an Addict. For all my listeners, I have a special gift for you. I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email.
Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and thedjburr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.